I'm not kidding. Praise God. We've had a lot of great things happening this week, and I just want to take a minute and uh, just acknowledge all the great things God's been doing around here. First of all, I think this building looks great today. I want to thank um, Vince Stewart, Hilton Bastic, Mike Fisher, Dave Fisher. They put a lot of effort in. Did I miss anybody? I think that was the, the main, but they, they were here, I mean, a long time. They probably each have, Vince, I'm sure, probably has about 30 hours in this building this week. Uh, it's, it's very subtle, but it is a drastic change at the same time. Our lighting looks good, balanced, and hopefully I look better. It takes a lot of work to make me look good <laughs> on the camera and social media, but um, I think we're getting things balanced, things looking better, and I appreciate them taking all that time and investing and making our... Uh, place of worship look good. Amen. They deserve that. They deserve that. And then our ladies, they did, they came together Friday night. They had a great time. Men, we've got to get it in gear now and keep up. We had our small group, but I think they've overtaken us with this ladies meeting. I heard they they had a great time, wonderful time together. And um, that's right. Hey, we we had 73 ladies here and two confused young men. And they were helping with the worship. Two of my sons came to help with the worship Friday night. But I heard they had a great time. And then last night, we just had a tremendous time of worship, gathering in. Uh, let, let's hear it for the Christians and, and their, their, their friends. Amen. I think, Joe, you, you've shown yourself to be a true Christian today. So we appreciate that. All right, more preacher jokes to come. I was entertaining them last night at dinner with, with preacher jokes. They're worse than dad jokes. But uh, we have fun anyway. No, they did a tremendous job. I appreciate them and uh, them leading us in worship. And uh, our friend Titus Chapman is going to be here next Sunday. We're going to have a great time of worship with him as well. Amen. All right. So we're going to start a new series of messages today called Dwelling Together. Together. It's going to be about worship. It, we're we're going to actually talk over the next several weeks about the gifts of the Spirit as well. And... Uh, so th- this is going to be a, a fun series. Looking forward to this. I think this is really going to help us out a lot. I've had just a, a shipload of questions recently about what happens in our service and why it happens and should it happen this way and what should we do. These questions have come to me. And so I think this series of messages will give us clarity. I'll tell you something else that will give you clarity. The Word of God. Amen. If you're just getting the Bible and read, there's a lot of clarity there. On, on what our worship services should look like. We've talked a lot this year about the church, about who we are, about our identity. And uh, we, we have landed, I think, on three very important things for us as a church, three values. They are worship, relationship, and mission. Worship, relationship, and mission. So worship is something that is very, very important. But sometimes we're not quite sure why we're doing what we do. And so hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll get a lot of clarity on that. Uh, have you ever been to like the, um, the beginning level of soccer, to one of those soccer games, like, what is it, four or five, six years old? Have you ever watched them? And they, have you noticed they don't score a lot of goals? And there's not a lot of strategy. You know, when you go to the professional soccer, they're spread out on the field. They're, they, they, they have things that they do specifically, the way that they move the ball, the way that the defenders are in a certain portion of the field, and then they have offensive guys that are in a different portion of the field. There's a lot of strategy, a lot of design. Uh, there's flow in the game. 
But when you go to that five and six-year-old soccer game, there, there's like this swarm of kids and they just, they're all chasing the ball, right? They, I, don't, I don't even know if they'd know that the object of the game is to get the ball in the goal. I think they just think it's to kick the ball. And there's this swarm of bees kind of going around, swarm of kids, they're, they're just chasing the ball. They don't exactly know what they're doing. Sometimes we're like that. Sometimes we're doing something, but we don't really know why we're doing it. Reminds me of a church I went, this was 20 years ago, I went up to Dayton, Ohio to, to minister in a church, and there was a young, young man named Eddie, he was a part of the youth group, I think he was probably about 15 years old. They told me a story about Eddie, they brought uh, one of his friends, his family brought one of his friends to church, and he was explaining to them, to his friend, what was going to happen. Yeah, you're going to have to go down, and this is one of those old Pentecostal churches, you're going to have to go down to the front, they're going to pray for you, and you're going to have to speak in tongues. And the kid says, do I really have to do that? And, and Eddie said, yeah, that's just the way we do things around here. <laughs> Sometimes we just have a way of doing things, but we're not sure why we do it. And I want us to be clear about what we do and why we do it. I believe that there is a great outpouring coming. I talk about this a lot. I believe there's an awakening coming. Uh, we, things are really dark in our nation and in our culture. Things are really dark even in the church culture. People are leaving churches in a, in a lot of cases. Young people don't want to come to church. Um, for for uh, you know, the greater part of them, they don't want to come to the church. Why is that? I, I don't know, but I believe God wants to do something about it. I've not given up hope on the young generation. I've not given up hope on the church. I believe that God wants to move, that an awakening needs to come to the church so that a revival can come to our nation. I believe what Ravenhill said. Now, Ravenhill died in 1994, but before he died, and Ravenhill was a great, great man of God, a great prophet. Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill, he said that, that pop in here. Ra Ravenhill said that there was going to come an, a, a revival of Pentecost that would out Pentecost Pentecost. You think about that. Think about the, out, the great outpouring in Acts chapter 2 of God's Spirit. There was a revival. There was an, uh, an awakening that came to the disciples. They had been following Jesus, but as they gathered in that upper room, something came and hit them that changed them and transformed them. We need that kind of change and transformation to come to the church today so that we can be effective and do what I believe God wants to do in this, this last time. But if we're going to have an Acts 2 type of experience... I think we've got to be doing what they were doing in Acts chapter 1. What were they doing? They were gathered together. The Bible says they were all in one accord. I didn't even know they made Hondas back then. <laughs> Preacher jokes. No, but seriously, there, there was a great unity. In fact, there was a setting in order. You remember that Judas had left their ranks and they, they selected another leader to take his place. They were putting things in order. There was great order there. How many of you know the order brings clarity? Clarity brings unity. Right? There was a setting in order. There was a restoration. And there was a great sense of unity. I believe if we're going to see God move, we need a great sense of unity in the church. We've all got to get on the same page. Amen? And what page? This is it right here. Amen? Not the ideas of men. 
Not, uh, you know, what our denominations when we were growing up told us that we were supposed to be doing. What, what does God's word say? So we're going to talk about dwelling together. I mean, God wants us to be a people who are together, who are united. And so let's, let's look into Psalm 133. It's, where we're, it's really going to be a theme for this entire series. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Every single time I read this verse, I think of our road trips as a family in 2015. 2015, for the entire year, well, 11 months of that year, we were on the road, our family, four, four kids in the back. We started in a minivan, and we upgraded to a Yukon by the end of the trip. We couldn't get all our luggage in the back of that minivan. All my wife's shoes <laughs> and purses. But I think of our time in that minivan, and I think of some great times where there was joy, there was harmony, there was singing, there was laughter, there was fun, and my heart was glad. Then I think of time when the kids were shouting at each other, fist fights. How many of you, I never had a big brother. I never, I didn't, as a child, I did not know what it was to get punched in the face until the fifth grade. <laughs> those fighting moments, those conflicts, when the father was not happy and he had to pull the van over. How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. I wonder if God looks at the church and he sees us in our clamoring, our bickering, our, our fighting, and he says, you know what, I'm going to pull the van over here for just a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some spankings here. These boys need some straightening out. It's like precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion. For the Lord, look at this, commanded the blessing, life evermore. Where there is unity, God commands blessing. Think about that. There's an anointing. There's an oil that flows when God's children are getting along. When we can dwell together in unity, there's strength, there's power, there's peace in God's house. Let's read another psalm. Psalm 122, it says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Some people don't like going to church, and some of them have good reason. Church fights and all this kind of stuff, they've been abused and used and gossiped about. And who can blame them, right? That's not what our experience should be. He says, now when we are here, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. And he says, I'm sorry, and now here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. When you read that in the original language, it says that it is a city. Jerusalem is a city built, compacted together. That's what the Lord wants his church to be, like a city that is built together, that functions together together that has seamless walls 
that cannot be breached. We, we've got to close up the gaps. The seams, the gaps, that's where the enemy can come in. You know, where the, you know what that is? That's gossip. That's slander. That's backbiting. That's maligning our brother's character. Not speaking well of our brother. Whenever we do that, Paul said, I forgive. In other words, I, I move towards living in harmony with my brother. At least Satan gets a foothold. Every place that we choose unforgiveness, every place that we choose gossip, every place that we choose bitterness, every place that we choose to attack our brother, to malign our brother, to belittle our brother, is a place where Satan gets a foothold. Think about that. We have to determine to make unity a priority. Unity is a powerful, powerful thing. How powerful is unity? In Genesis chapter 11, we see a picture of exactly how powerful unity is. God is looking at a bunch of heathen people, a bunch of pagans. And he says of these pagans, they're of one mind, they're of the, the same speech, they have one spirit and one purpose. And this is what God says about a bunch of pagans who are united. He says, nothing shall be impossible for them. Now, if he'll say that about pagans, how much more so the children of God, if we are united, if we're of the same speech, if we're of the same spirit, if we are of the same purpose, how much more power do we have than the heathen nations if we would just unite? Think about it. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says this. He says, I also tell you, if two of you agree, this word agree means to harmonize together. To, it literally means to make symphony together. When we agree, it's like the symphony. How many of you have ever been to the symphony when, when, they're, when they're beginning, before they start, there's this warm-up period, and it's very uh, disharmonious, I don't even know the word, D disharmonious, is that a word? That's right. There, there is this confusing sound when you go into the symphony. They're tuning their instruments. There's the whining of the, the violin and the, the, the oboe and all these different instruments, the woodwinds, and they're, they're, none of them are playing together. They're, they're, they're not focused on one another. They're, they're just focused on their instrument, and there's a great sound of disharmony. You know, many of us focus on our instruments. Well, I'm a prophet, and I'm going to prophesy whether they like it or not. I'm going to prophesy whether it blesses people or not. Because I'm a prophet and they don't appreciate my gift. It's like that sound of the symphony warming up before they come together and that conductor steps in and he brings order. And harmony. Amen? We shouldn't be focused so much on our gift. We, the Bible tells us we need to desire gifts. But when we overfocus on the gift instead of the gift giver, it brings confusion in the body. When we demand that we get our way, especially with our gift, it doesn't edify, it will actually disrupt the body. Think about that. We're going to go deep in this stuff later on in this series. But see, Jesus says, if, if two of you would agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together, as many 
as my followers, I am there among them. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23 says, I'm, I'm not praying, I, I, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. He's praying to the Father. He says, Father, I'm praying that they would be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. This is Jesus' prayer for the church. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That's the Lord's prayer for us that we would walk in unity. Think about all the things that Jesus could have prayed over the church. And this is one of the things that he focused on. Think about it. And how disjoined are we? How divided are we? How many schisms are there in the body of Christ? It should not be this way. God wants us to be united. Lack uh, Lack of harmony, lack of unity disrupts the purposes of God. It affects our evangelism. It it, it affects our fruitfulness. It affects church growth. We will never be as effective as we should be until we get unity and order. Order. You know that order brings multiplication? What's the greatest miracle of multiplication in the Bible? Fish and loaves, right? What did Jesus do? He told the disciples to order the people in groups of 50 and 100. Why? He's showing us something, that order brings multiplication. When we get in order, when we get in line with the purposes of God and the people of God, we will be more fruitful. When we order our lives, we will be be more fruitful. That's why I think it's important that you come to church every single Sunday. I believe that. I practice that. have practiced that for 23 years. I made the determination whether or not I was going to be here today, not last night, I made that determination 23 years ago, and it has blessed my life. There's a balance to my life. There's an order to my life. There's a strength to my life because I've made a determination to honor the house of the Lord on the Lord's day, and that brings strength. Order will bless your life. If you don't have order, listen, my days when I don't have order are wasted. I like to write to-do lists. I put them in my phone now. This is what I need to do today. Because if I don't do that, I don't end up doing any of it. I need order. Order blesses our life. Amen? God wants to put order in the church. God wants to bring unity to the church. Without that, we lose so much. We lose power without order and without unity. Think about what happened in Texas during that that freeze. The lack of preparation, the lack of what was the structure, infrastructure to give the electricity where it was needed caused caused a power power failure. Same thing will happen in the church if we're not careful. It It will cause a loss in presence. I believe the presence of God will depart from his children whenever they fight. Whenever we're bickering. So we have to work 
for unity. Nobody comes to church to see a church fight. Right? They're not coming for a Jerry Springer episode. <laughs> they get enough of that stuff at home. They've been abused, they've been attacked, they've been maligned, they see that at work, they see it at school, they see it everywhere that they go. The house of God should be a refuge. It should be a place of acceptance, forgiveness, love, unity, embracing. Amen, it should be. But it takes work. It takes work to keep my kids getting along in the back seat. It takes work for us as a church to get along. Personality conflicts, all kinds of other things. It makes for a lot of work. Apostle Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that we should always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love, making every effort, this is it right here, making every effort, in other words, it takes work to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there's one body, one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. It takes work. There's one body, but it takes work for all of us to come in and be a part of that body and to get along. How do we do that? He gives us, I think, four very key words there in verse two. He says, be humble, be gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's fault. Number one, we've gotta be humble. We've gotta have a humble heart. We have to have a humble heart. A humble heart doesn't assume that I know it all. A humble heart doesn't assume that my opinions are right. A humble heart does not insist on getting its own way. A humble heart will set aside its own agenda for a higher cause. I've said this, I think, twice now already. I'll say it a third time today. I'm the senior pastor. I don't always get my way around here. Why? Because there was a, song, a lyric in a song that we sang just a minute ago. I think it says it best. It's best his way. Amen? You know, God getting his way is much more important than me getting my way around here. And the same thing goes for you. What's best for the body? What's gonna, we, we need to ask ourselves a question. When we have an agenda, we need to ask ourselves a question. Is it going to give glory to God and is it going to edify the body? If you can answer no to either one of those, then just sit on your agenda. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Number two, he talks about gentleness, meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness does not look like Barney Fife. Meekness probably looks more like Hulk Hogan. Great strength. That, th th those guys look like they're out of control, but they are actually under great control. If they weren't under control and they did those maneuvers that they do in the wrestling ring, they would probably kill each other. That's meekness. Strength under control. It's actually a term used for breaking horses. When you break a horse, the cowboys used to say you would meek the horse. You don't want to destroy its will. You don't want to destroy the spirit of the horse. You want to bring it under control. Amen? That's meekness. Our, our spirit under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's meekness. Meekness is not defensive. Meekness does not have to stand up for its own rights. Meekness can, trust, can entrust all of it to Jesus. He's my defender. He's going to get vengeance. He's going to advance his cause. And my, my cause is hitched to his cause, so we're going to be all right. That's meekness. Third thing he talks about is long-suffering. It's long-suffering. He says, it's, it's some things I got here in my notes. He says, we, we, we may have to suffer long 
before we see the fruit of our sacrifice. Long-suffering is a a willingness to endure the offenses and irritations of others. We did this exercise in our our worship team meeting um, Tuesday night. Let's do it here as a church right now. I want everybody to close your eyes. I want you to think of one person in our church family. And if you say you can't do this, I'm going to pray for you at the end of the... Think of one person in our church family that gets on your nerves. You got them? You don't have to say their name, just nod your head up and down if you got them. Some of y'all are ashamed to nod. Now here's my word for you. Suffer along with that person. That's long-suffering. Imagine an eight-hour car trip, the two of you in the back seat. Can you ride? What's an eight-hour trip from here? Can you ride from here to Pittsburgh with that person in the back seat of the car without punching them in the face? Going back to the road trip with the Hayes family. That's long-suffering. We're called to suffer long with one another, with our brothers and sisters. And to tell you the truth, if you spend eight hours in the backseat of a car with me, I'd probably irritate every one of you. Right? But can we endure? Can we forbear one another? Why? Because Jesus suffered long for us. Amen? This type of attitude does not react to every issue that arises for the sake of the relationship. There are sometimes we just need to button our lip. And we need to say, Holy Spirit, he's yours. That's what my wife does with me all the time. You deal with him. I'll just keep suffering. <laughs> That's long suffering. Forbearance is the third thing. It's making allowance for each other's faults. Keep on accepting people, even when they bother us. That's forbearance. These things are not easy. They really aren't easy things for us to do. Let's uh, look at quickly here two things that, if we're not careful, they'll, they'll disrupt our unity. First thing, out of James chapter 3, verse 14, is selfish ambition. He says, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover, it, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. Selfish ambition will destroy relationships. What's, what's the key to a good marriage? Two people that are laying their lives down for one another. Two people that are serving one another. Two people that are, as, as the Bible says in Romans, Trying, striving to outdo one another in honor. That's a key to a healthy marriage. It's also the key to healthy church relationships. Laying down our agenda for a brother. Laying down our ego for the sake of a relationship. Setting our feelings aside at times. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be doormats. I'm not sh- saying that we should let people take advantage of us constantly and abuse us. 
I'm just saying there are some times when if, if, if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit, he will prompt you and say, hey, that's not a fight you want to fight. I'm doing a work in that brother's heart, and if you pick that scab, you're going to undo everything that I'm trying to do. Swallow your pride and let me do my work. Don't let your ego get in the way. Philippians tells us this, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others, but be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus had. It goes on in the next few verses and, and describes that attitude, and here's what it was. Jesus was God, and he left the throne and humbled himself and became human. And for you and I, he died on a cross. When we were the enemies of God, when we were wretches, when we were unlovely, he loved us and died for us. And that's the attitude that, that Paul's saying here. You need to have the exact same attitude that Jesus had. Don't be selfish. It's not about you. There's a greater cause. Listen, the, the less it becomes about you, the more fulfillment you're going to come, come across in life. The more you're going to be satisfied, the more you're going to find contentment, joy, peace. When you can make it about Jesus, when you can make it about others, your life is going to be full. Amen? So don't be selfish. That's the number one unity inhibitor. Number two unity inhibitor is, is criticism. And there's many, many more. We're going we're gonna, to uh, come across these through this series of messages. But criticism. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 11, he says, don't speak evil against each other. Let's just pause on that one for a second. Don't speak evil of each other. That's a heavy word. Even little things. Little criticisms. We need to be careful with our words to each other and about each other. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you are criticizing, if you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge, and he alone has the power to save or to destroy so what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Jesus said you're looking at this little splinter in your brother's eye and you ought to be more focused on that big log in your eye. Right? For every criticism that comes to your spirit about somebody else, to your mind about somebody else, you need to say, okay, hold on a second. What's wrong with me? What do I need to work out? You know, what, you know what, a friend of mine taught me this, this concept that when, whenever you're in a situation and there's some kind of a conflict, some kind of an impasse in that relationship, you need to ask yourself, how am I complicit in this situation? What kind of confusion or angst or frustration am I contributing to this situation? Because our tendency is to always say it's her fault. The reason we're in this predicament is because what she did, Right? We need to stop and ask ourselves, what am I doing that's frustrating this situation? What am I doing that's, that's causing hurt, pain? If you'll take that attitude, it will transform your relationships. 
Let's get back to criticism. Criticizing someone is easier than celebrating someone. Try it. There's a reality that our human nature, our human tendency is we, we, we love to critique. We love to point out what's wrong. We love to highlight people's weaknesses. We're not very good at celebrating people. We need to turn that thing on its ears, on its ear. We need to practice celebrating people. We need to make a conscientious effort to celebrate people, to boast about them, to honor them, to speak well of them when our tendency would be to criticize them. There's a big difference in criticism and celebration. One of them leads to jealousy, and the other one leads to joy. That's a reality. It's a thousand times easier to criticize than it is to create. Have you ever noticed that people who are critics don't create much? It's a thousand times easier to criticize than it is to create. That's why critics are never problem solvers. Critics find fault everywhere that they go. They find conflict everywhere that they go. They break relationships easily. We need to move beyond that. We need to move towards love. Love has the kind of power that criticism only wishes that it had. We need to move towards love. I want to wrap up with, with, with this. We're going, to, we're going to move into, this is a series about worship. I just want to highlight some things about worship here for just a second. It is important when we come together to worship that there's unity. There needs to be unity when we gather together to worship. Second Corinthians, or Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 13, it says, The trumpeters and the singers performed together. In unison. You see that? They performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Look what happens. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. What happened? Unity and a visitation of the presence of God. They sang together in unison. They played together with great harmony. And they they said this, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. they, They were literally repeating this the, the musicians, and, and we're going to get into the order of musicians. They were very ordered. There was structure to it. They, and, and they began to, to sing, the, sing this line, The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. And as they sang it, the crowd began to join in. There were literally tens of, this is the dedication of Solomon's temple, and there were tens of thousands of people gathered for this dedication ceremony. And as they're singing this song, the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever, the crowd begins to gather. And would you help me with this? The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. And as they lifted their voice together, the presence of God came to that to the point where the priests were not able to stand to minister. That's what unity does when we come together to worship. 
I'm going to give you some five, five real quick points here. Worship is a lifestyle that gives, gives the Lord priority in your life. It puts Jesus at the center. When we gather in here to worship, it's not about you. I think Joe said it last night. Sometimes he's listening to a song and he thinks, I don't really like a song. And then he thinks, okay, wait a minute, that's not for me anyway. The worship's not for you. It's for Jesus. It's not about the worship leader. It's not about the musician. It's not about the back-end vocalists. It's not about the preacher. When we gather together, we are centered on Jesus. We're come, we, we have come here for him. Our focus needs to be on him. It shouldn't be on our gifts, whether they be spiritual gifts, musical gifts, speaking gifts. That shouldn't be our focus. It should be on him, and we should use our gifts, whether it be prophecy or some spiritual gift, whether it be worship, whether it be playing an instrument, whether it be preaching the word. We need to use our gifts to bring glory to Jesus. Amen? And if, if that's our aim, there won't be any striving over our gifts. There's so much conflict over gifts in the church. And it shouldn't be. I, I've been, I, read, I was at my office this morning, and I read through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I read over and over again. The purpose of those gifts were to edify. Why have they become so divisive and not gifts that bring us together and edify us? Something's got to change in the way that we do our worship services. Worship is a lifestyle that puts the priority on the Lord. It puts Jesus at the center. That's number one. Number two, expressing worship together in, in heart and in action is meant to be a powerful tool in the creation of unity. In other words, when our hearts and our bodies are engaged in worship, it creates unity. When our hearts are fully engaged in bringing glory to God, celebrating, honoring, worshiping Jesus, our hands, our mouths, our feet, we're engaged in honoring him. It creates a unity. It brings us to a point where we're doing the same thing and saying the same thing. I've been to some church services where there's been communion over here in this corner, prayer ministry here, the worship team is going, and people, and the worship leader, I've heard this a thousand times, worship Jesus in your own way. No, that, that's wrong. You know where you worship Jesus in your own way? At home, in your car, in your prayer closet. When we come together there, and we're going to look at this, there are very specific instructions in the Word of God about what it should look like when we come together to worship. There's examples, Old Testament new, of what the, our worship should look like. Amen. And it's us coming together, doing the same thing, saying the same thing like we saw here in 2 Chronicles. When we get to that point where we're in unity, in worship, I believe there's a presence that comes. Now, we're not going to become legalistic about that. If you're not lifting your hands when everybody else is lifting your hands, we're not going to come around with a ruler <laughs> like the Catholic school teacher. We're not going to get like that. I don't want this to become some legalistic thing. I'm just trying to, I want us to catch the heart of that. It's a spirit of unity, not, not a, a legalistic, hey, you know, we're marching, you better march. I don't want it to ever become that. But I want us to have a heart that says, I want to go with my, I want to go up to the house of the Lord with my brothers and sisters and do something that I can't do in my closet. 
glorify God together with my family, with my brothers, with my sisters. It's a unique encounter that happens when we gather together. Worship draws us to focus on the center of our faith instead of drawing to the edge where things may divide us. When, when Jesus is at the center, all those battles over eschatology, you know, am I going to be raptured before the tribulation or during the tribulation or after the tribulation? When, when our focus is on glorifying Jesus, remember, remember our Easter Sunday message where the Lamb of God was front and center? There were, there were no arguments in that moment about who was going to sit at the right hand or the left hand. There, there were no ecclesio, ecclesiology arguments. There were no uh, pneumology arguments. There, there, were, there were no eschatology arguments. They just stood in awe of Jesus and worshiped. Right? That's what happens. I mean, let me read the statement again. Worship draws us to focus on the center of our faith instead of drawing to the edges where things may divide. Real worship brings Calvinists and Arminians, Ar Arminians together at Jesus. It brings Pentecostals and Baptists together. It brings the pre-trib and the post-trib people together. Amen? We can agree on the main things. We agree that Jesus was the Son of God. We believe that he was born of a virgin. We believe that he died for our sins, and on the third day he rose again. We can believe on those things. We can believe that we, we all believe that there's no other way to heaven but by him. We can agree on fundamental things, and we can focus on Jesus, and all the peripheral things just become foggy and hazy out in the side. That creates a unity in the body. Worship draws us away from selfishness and it strengthens the bonds that tie us together. As we respond to the Lordship of Jesus, we grow in humility towards our brothers and sisters. Listen, if you come in here and you're angry at your spouse and you leave angry at your spouse, you're doing it wrong. If you can sit in this church for six months mad at somebody, you're doing it wrong. Because coming into the presence of Jesus will transform you. It'll shift your heart. It'll move that weight of unforgiveness. And you'll dump it at the altar. Say, I'm walking out of here a free man today. It's what happened to me 23 years ago when I walked into a camp meeting, a guy that was trying to figure out how to overcome a problem, and no way I'd struggled with it for 18 months, doing everything I could to become free. But I got in the presence of Jesus for three hours, and I walked out a changed, transformed man. I'm still not perfect, but I'm pretty close. <laughs> Thanks to Jesus. Much closer than I used to be. Last verse right here. I'm going to wrap up with this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I was reading through, I've been reading through these passages for the last several weeks. But as I was reading through this this week, it really stood out to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. Well then, what should we do? 
I will pray in the Spirit, and I will also pray in words I understand. I will sing in the Spirit, and I will also sing in words I understand. For if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? That, that just stuck out to me. For if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? I'm asking my wife to come. How, how can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you're saying? You'll be giving thanks very well but it won't strengthen, look at this, it will not strengthen the people who hear you. I thank God that I speak in tongues. I thank God that I speak in tongues. Is that? I think that is me. I'm going to try to be very still. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. This passage just struck me. As, I, as I've read through this, it's become clear. The gifts of the Spirit, what happens in our worship service, it should bring edification. It should bring clarity. People should leave encouraged. When we prophesy, it should not leave people confused. The Bible gives us a lot of instruction, two, two chapters, and there, there are other instructions throughout the scriptures, but two tra- chapters specifically given to the order of worship service. One of the principles we learned in, in Bible college was that we need to give the same priority to things that God gives priority to. We humans have a tendency to take one little thing, usually out of context, and hyper-focus on it and build some mega-doctrine that God never intended us to believe. But when God talks about it for two chapters, how many of you know it's important? What we do on a Sunday morning is important. Two things that it should do. Number one, it should glorify God. Number two, it should edify every person who comes in this house. We should leave this place built, changed, transformed, renewed, encouraged, because we've been in the presence of God. We've been in the presence of his people. There's power in that. You know, David, when he was depressed, he said, I remembered the house of God, and I remembered the people of God, and I was encouraged. That's what ought to happen when we come to church. We ought to be built and edified and encouraged and lifted up. I pray that every Sunday we leave better than we did when we came out, when we came in. My pastor used to say this all the time when I was growing up. He said, it was an Old Testament picture. When people came into the temple, they would go in one door and they would go out another way. They would never leave through the same door they came in. And he said the picture there was that you you can't leave the same way that you came in. When you've been in the presence of God, when you've been with God's people, you ought to leave changed. Amen? Let's stand together. Rach, have you got a 